We are here today um, at uh, Bitcoin Expo 2014 in Toronto, Canada, and I am here with perhaps the most prolific um, Bitcoin expert who has given perhaps hundreds of interviews on the topic, mm. if not thousands already, and in a way maybe even the face of Bitcoin, if it, if it were, for at least for beginners such as myself, Andreas Antonopoulos. I appreciate the introduction. Um, I, I like to think of myself as a big fan of Bitcoin, but uh, certainly not the greatest expert. But I, I really enjoy this topic, and uh, fortunately I get the opportunity every day to talk to the really smart people who understand Bitcoin and to learn from them, uh, and then uh, try to make it approachable and understandable to others. That's fantastic, because among my audience, you would it, it would be very hard for you to find smarter audience than mine, I, mm -hmm. I would dare to claim. Mm -hmm. So, Andreas, let's let's start at the very beginning, right? At sort of the Big Bang, if it were, the singularity. And that's to say, the first moment when you actually heard about Bitcoin, when was it and how did it happen? So, I, I've been involved with digital currencies uh, since the late 80s. Uh, I was interested in the area of cryptography and digital currency, um, free speech and expression and the things that go with that. And uh, I just was not involved in the space for a while. And then in 2011, I first heard about Bitcoin. And my reaction was completely dismissive. I thought, <laughs> same as me, nerd money, whatever. <laughs> and I just ignored it. Um, now, since then, I found out that a lot of people had a similar first reaction, which even people who are deeply enmeshed in uh, digital cryptocurrencies and digital currencies and really understood the topic, it just seemed like such an improbable candidate for success. I think that's one of the interesting things. The second time I heard about Bitcoin, about six months later, I decided to read the Satoshi paper, mm -hmm. which is the white paper written by Satoshi Nakamoto. It's very accessible, uh, if, even for a non-technical audience, but especially for a slightly technical audience in any scientific discipline, if you've read a scientific paper, it's very approachable. and it's one of the best pieces of writing I've ever seen. In nine pages, not only explains the entire concept, but even predicts um, several things that happened years later and, and how it would unfold as a system. And I started reading this paper, and I remember about halfway through, I just had this, this moment of epiphany, which has happened to me four or five times in my life. The first time I had a computer, first time I went on the internet, the first modem, uh, the first time I used Linux, um, you know, these moments of, of just being overwhelmed. And I suddenly realized this isn't a currency. It's a trust network. It's a value network. It's a distributed model for trust without a central authority. And it hit me so hard. And I thought, the, just the possibilities of this. And, and immediately I started thinking about Oh, you, you could do this and it solves this other problem and you, you could do so many things with it. And currency is just such a tiny part of it and completely derailed my life for four and a half months. <laughs> <laughs> completely derailed it. I spent 18 hours a day reading everything I could find about Bitcoin. I didn't have time to eat. I didn't have time to do anything else. Um, 
I was, I, I couldn't get off a laptop. I would wake up in the morning, pick up a laptop and start reading about Bitcoin and do that until I couldn't keep my eyes open anymore. Shut it down, sleep for six hours and repeat for four months, nonstop. Um, so that was a real singularity in the personal sense then. I, I had to go through something similar when I discovered yes. the first the technological singularity and transhumanism and that totally blew up my mind and yes. then I, I had to do the same thing in, in right. that realm myself. So I, I can sympathize very much. And, and the funny thing is that when I ex when I described that experience, the first time I was reluctant to describe that experience because it sounds nuts, let's be honest. I mean, it, it sounds like a very unhealthy level of obsession and it is a very unhealthy level of obsession. And when I went to the first Bitcoin conference and I described that experience, Every single person I told said that happened to me. Not to the same extent, perhaps, but in a very similar way. It's that moment when you realize this is so much bigger than what it appears at first glance. Um, I was 10 years old when I got my first computer, uh, a ZX81 Sinclair computer, very, very basic. And I had no idea what programming was, but I was always a bit technically minded and once I, once I started reading about it on the second page of the manual of the computer, I just got sucked in. I emerged about a year later. <laughs> I could do assembly programming by that point. I taught myself assembly. And it was just a, again, a moment of epiphany. And so with Bitcoin, this experience, um, which wasn't very healthy, I ended up losing about 25 pounds, um, just because I wasn't, I didn't have time to eat. It's You're as lucky, simple as that. Really gain. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, people around me were worried, uh, were worried about my health because, you know, it wasn't a healthy situation. And then I changed my professional focus. I stopped doing other projects and I decided, you know, this is the thing I want to be doing and, um, pretty much dropped everything else. Um, within a, within about a year after that, I switched my focus full time to Bitcoin. What year was that? Uh, this was in early 2012. And in early 2012, I think it was about January or February, um, I stopped everything. And uh, I just I just did full time Bitcoin from that moment on. Um, the same happened to me with the singularity. I just started full time blogging and podcasting on the topics related to it. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing it full time ever since. And for the most part, in the beginning, you know, it wasn't really, uh, um, it wasn't something that I could do full time. Same here. Um, but by 2013, it started becoming doable, and um, and, and you know, and I, I just wanted to tell everyone uh, mm -hmm. every every moment. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to tell people about this amazing thing that I was experiencing. It's very similar to when I first got onto the internet in 1989. I wanted to tell everyone this is going to change the world. People are going to do their banking and their shopping and they're going to communicate in a global community. And this is going to radically change the world. And the response I got was, yeah, Andreas, well, you're 14 and you should really be doing your homework. And yeah, this isn't going to happen for decades. Okay, so but so it did. <laughs> so so let's jump right in the meat of the matter here, and let's let's see, for the very beginners like yeah. me, presume complete ignorance, right? I mean, I'm not called Socrates for nothing. I mean, I know that I don't know. So tell me, what is Bitcoin? 
So Bitcoin is uh, is many things. It's a currency, but it's also the name of the network that supports this currency, and it's also a set of protocols and standards, uh, essentially conventions that everybody can follow to use this, a language. Mm -hmm. um, and behind it, there's this very special uh, invention, which is the blockchain, and the blockchain underpins Bitcoin and makes it possible to work. Mm -hmm. In order to understand Bitcoin, you have to take a couple of steps back and look at the history of digital currencies. So, you know, when we say digital currencies, what do we mean? Money nowadays is really a series of numbers and spreadsheets and banks. But these numbers are held by banks in trust and they're centrally controlled so that uh, you can't transmit digital money unless there's a bank in between that's taking money from one account and putting it into another. Mm -hmm. A lot of people tried to use cryptography starting in the mid-80s uh, using cryptographic primitives, uh, encryption and decryption, digital keys and digital signatures. So what if you could take uh, a number and have it digitally signed by a central bank and say this is now a piece of money, like mm -hmm. a $1 bill? Yeah. And then you can email that number to someone, and they can email it to someone else, and so on and so forth. And because it's signed by the central bank, it's recognized as currency. You can do that. We yeah. could do that back in the mid-80s. Here's the problem, though. Just as you can easily email that, you could email it to two different people. You can make two or copies of it, or a million. right? So the problem is that you could spend it twice. The solution to that was, while it was very convenient, you can't forge it. You can transmit it instantly, but you can also copy it. That was the problem. How do you make sure that this token of money is both unforgeable but also scarce? It is rare. It is not possible to spend it twice. And the solution to that was always once a day, maybe at the end of the day, collect all of the transactions and make sure that nobody spent anything twice so that if you spend something, only the first one counts. And then if you're someone who's receiving this money, you have to check with the central bank and say, has this been spent already? Mm -hmm. Or can I receive this? Is it real? Which was the solution. The problem with this solution is that if you try to compete against the banking system with digital currency, and you have a central organization that's going to manage that currency, that central organization is a target. So governments, banks, regulators, com competitors, hackers, Anybody who wants to take that down, all they have to do is find that central point and stomp on it. <laughs> You've got a single point of failure. Yeah. Um, until 2008, this problem was not solved. And then in 2008, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto created this combination of a number of different technologies that allowed digital currencies to be issued and exchanged without needing a central authority, without needing a clearinghouse, and solve the problem of double spend. The idea that you could now just as easily email this currency anywhere you want and transmit it on any network, but every participant in the network could check that the money had not been spent before, could trust that transaction without referring to any central trusted authority. Mm -hmm. So it solved the problem of digital currency. But in the process of solving that problem, it solved a much more fundamental problem. And this much more fundamental problem was that it enabled 
a distributed network of computers to agree on a state of reality. In this case, a list of accepted transactions, or who has the money, simple facts, without having to trust each other, and without having to trust any central authority. No gatekeepers. No gatekeepers. It created the first ever decentralized trust network, of which the obvious first application is currency. But once you realize that this doesn't just solve the problem of currency, it solves the problem of anything that requires trust, mm -hmm. you can now do without a centralized organization. Yeah. That is absolutely mind-blowing. You know, I'm a recovering political scientist, and I know that one of the major features of a revolution is that the old centers of power get destroyed or just simply made obsolete. Mm -hmm. That's the meaning of revolutionary change. Mm -hmm. right? So I think this would seem to fit. I think what we're but seeing... But we always have a backlash. What we're seeing is really a theme that has existed now probably for about 25 years, which is the theme is the use of technology to solve problems at scale mm -hmm. in a decentralized way that previously could not be solved. The internet was the first, was the first major example in the first wave of that because what it allowed us to do is take centralized control over information, centralized control over communication, centralized control over truth, fact, and opinion, and completely decentralize those functions and allow individuals to exchange information, communication, and truth without having to rely on a central party, and most importantly, removing control from centralized institutions that for centuries or millennia had controlled the flow of information, and most importantly, had controlled the origin of truth and the definition of truth on a cultural basis. The internet allowed individuals to derive their own truth without reference to authority. That's perhaps the biggest best benefit from the Cold War and the nuclear arms race that I can think of. Because, you know, of course, originally the internet was designed for the minute man missiles in the presumption that perhaps the central yes. authority would be hit by the enemy and then you still should be able to hit back in a decentralized manner and then Little did they know that while resolving that problem, it would create all kinds of issues consequently or, or potentialities for amazing freedom and, and possibilities. Right, because once you create a system that allows for decentralized organization, that system will inherently scale better mm -hmm. and it will deliver more value to each of the participants in that network than any centralized system can. Mm -hmm. Over time, it will start generating what's called a network effect, mm -hmm. where as more participants join the network, it multiplies the value of the network very rapidly. Yeah. It spreads virally, and each new participant makes the network more valuable. Yeah, and the internet is a perfect case, so is Facebook. So, so it is, starts with a yeah. small seed, Yeah. but that seed grows very quickly, and most importantly, every attempt to stop it by creating centralized copies of it fails because the centralized copies cannot deliver the same amount of value to the participants. They can't scale as fast. Okay, so That's instructive because now it's happening to money. Mm -hmm. And not just money, but more importantly, the underlying trust mechanisms of exactly. money. And that really changes a lot of things. So the, the theme of the last 25 years is a theme of decentralization. Exactly. Decentralization of information and control. And now, 
with Bitcoin, that's been extended to decentralization of currency, finance, and some of the basic levers of power that have been used by sovereigns and nation-states and by um, very powerful institutions that have used the control over money to apply societal control and political control over big parts of this planet. Yeah, basically the state prerogatives as a political science, the two main features used to be the monopoly over the means of organized violence, and we know that that's been diminishing greatly for at least 20 or 30 years. I mean, Cody uh, Wilson, who was a guest here at the conference, again, that was one of his main points that he mm -hmm. tried to prove by making a 3D printable uh, gun, which mm -hmm. is to say the state has no longer the power to control that kind of technology. And then the next thing that the state used to control and still largely controls is, of course, the supply of money. Yes. And, now and, it and of the two, and of the two, centralized control over money is much more important because it has to pay to control the means of organized violence I because the be means of organized violence are delivered through people yes. soldiers yes. and one lesson dictators have learned through millennia of history them. is that the month after you stop paying your soldiers they yeah. turn their guns on the dictator um, and we're beginning to see that actually happen in a number of countries around the world it's interesting to note how uh, almost every popular revolution where the military has sided with the people. Take um, Romania and the Timisoara yeah. uh, Square incident, which started the toppling of the Cold War uh, with Ceausescu, yeah. where the soldiers turned their guns on the generals instead of the people. Um, they had not been paid for a couple of months. They had food shortages. Yeah. You first have a currency crisis or a food shortage and then the edifice of power that's built on the backs of normal people collapses because you can no longer support it. So you, we're beginning to see that in places like Venezuela. Mm -hmm. We're beginning to see that in other places around the world. And these things happen, you know, the, in, in Tunisia, it started with a food shortage. Um, currency crisis and food shortage are the seeds. And the price of oil, if I remember, cooking right. oil. Yes, exactly. So those, those things really trigger um, popular revolutions. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is that because of very tight currency controls in most of the world, usually it reaches a stage of such extreme uh, crisis that the actual resolution to that is extreme in, in its nature and very violent. Mm -hmm. um, what's interesting about uh, digital currencies and the options they offer is that they may offer a relief valve. Uh, allowing people to opt out of a currency crisis, escape the, the hostage situation that's created within a country that's in currency crisis, give them an option to stabilize their finances on an individual and community basis, and therefore make a transition less violent, less extreme. Is that what we're observing now in places like, for example, Argentina? I don't think so yet. We're still very early days. I think it's going to take probably a decade before you start seeing digital currencies having an impact. Just like it took more than a decade for, for mainstream internet until it had an impact in places like Egypt and more recently the Ukraine in terms of... But then again, that change is accelerating, right? Yes. Facebook took much less than the internet. Yes. 
the consequent innovations took much less time, so it's perhaps reasonable to guess that Bitcoin will take less than 10 years. Blockchain technologies, digital currency technologies are going to evolve much faster because we don't need to deploy any infrastructure. We already have the infrastructure, it's exactly. the internet. We don't need to lay any more cables. You can now become a participant in a global transnational economy of digital currency simply by downloading an application on your smartphone. Uh, that level of adoption can be achieved very, very fast, and that's a very low barrier to entry. Okay, so let me ask you a couple of other things about Bitcoin so that we lay properly all the foundation here. Now, you said that part of the most unique features of it are the fact that it's decentralized and the fact that it managed to successfully resolve the technical problem of trust verification yes. or transaction verification. Now, what else makes Bitcoin so unique? There's a couple of interesting features. Um, I think the, the core blockchain technology and the decentralized trust model is, is the most interesting thing. And it has already resulted in more than 150 currencies that, that use that basic technology to express different aspects of it. Mm -hmm. The other interesting thing was the monetary policy that was embedded into Bitcoin from the very beginning. And that monetary policy essentially is having a, a fixed amount of currency, 21 million Bitcoin. That's the total amount of Bitcoin that's ever going to be issued. And the way that's achieved is through the same consensus mechanism of the decentralized trust model, whereby over time the amount of Bitcoin issued is reduced by half every four years, approximately. Now, that leads to the, one of the most popular criticisms, of course, that Bitcoin is inherently deflationary. Yes. And you have economists who would say, in a growing economy, you must have, let's say, arguably about 2% point worth of inflation, just to sort of sustain the GDP growth of the economy. And unless you have that, that is, if you have limited money supply, you cannot accommodate economic growth. Yes. Is that, is that a correct, a fair argument to, to, to put against Bitcoin? Is it inherently deflationary and unable to accommodate any economic growth? In the long term, Bitcoin is deflationary. And in the short term, it's not. It's actually inflationary because the rate of adoption is, is, is pushing it to inflationary levels. The price increases faster than, uh, than the restriction of supply. But here's the thing, there's a fundamental paradigm shift going on here, and that is that we're going from a geographically determined nation-state-based currency system of 193 currencies. Bitcoin is not the 194th currency in the world. Bitcoin is the first transnational currency. It's not a national currency, it's not restricted by borders. And it's not a currency that stands alone in a monopolistic situation where other currencies can't compete. And it's not a closed ecosystem where you can't exit or enter the currency easily. Mm -hmm. It lives in an ecosystem of other currencies that have different monetary characteristics and a very fluid environment where people can move their money in and out. Now, part of the reason, for example, you have a currency crisis in Argentina is because they can only use Argentinian pesos. If they could pick and choose any of the 193 national currencies at any time, convert them instantly without any physical exchange, and fluidly transact in any currency they wanted, you'd have a very different economic situation and monetary behavior. Actually, you know, I grew up in communist Bulgaria, and I remember one of the choke points, of course, of government control was the 
exchange rate. Of course. Right? So we were all stuck. It was illegal to use U.S. dollars or own U.S. dollars at that time. Which means that only the Politburo had them. And we had, in those extreme rare situations when you were allowed to have like a hundred bucks or there was some ridiculously low limit like that, they set the exchange rate. Right. So that's the choke point of control. So basically you're stuck with that paper which they control entirely and you're stuck with it because they control the choke point of, of exchange. Well, the other thing to realize also is that deflationary currencies only exist uh, in, in an environment where the currency is issued by a central bank and where that currency is issued against debt incurred by the government uh, through the issuance of treasury bills or government bonds and where the government has the ability to print an infinite amount of money the only time you have a deflationary economy, with the only time where you have deflationary experience in the currency, is when you have a complete and catastrophic collapse in demand. Because only then can the catastrophic collapse in demand overwhelm the ability of the central printing press to print so much money to create inflation to overcome the deflationary characteristics. Mm -hmm. You really have to have either an obstinate government that refuses to print, or can't issue bonds at all, or a, a catastrophic collapse in demand that sucks every energy out of the economy, and essentially the economy starts sliding backwards. So deflationary experience has only been experienced in a fiat currency in the context of catastrophic demand collapse, like in the last decades in Japan, um, like in uh, economies that are in the midst of war or a civil war. Bitcoin isn't a debt-based currency. Bitcoin is an asset-based currency, which is fundamentally different, just like precious metals. Um, and gold has been a deflationary currency since the beginning of time. Um, and it experiences or expresses deflation without a collapse in demand. So the mainstream economic concepts that we have and the fear of deflation are based on two basic assumptions, in my mind. And I'm not an economist. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're going to see many different monetary experiments, whether Bitcoin or other currencies with different monetary characteristics, some deflationary, some inflationary. You can do all of that on the blockchain, so it doesn't really matter. But I also think that some of the criticism you get from mainstream economists who are embedded in, this, in the current paradigm of money come from the fact that you never see deflationary economics outside of uh, catastrophic situations, and they're related to uh, debt-based instruments. And the second one is that the, the things that express deflationary characteristics like precious metals cannot easily be transported. They, the, the, their liquidity or fungibility is, is limited because you can't easily take a bar of gold and divide it into infinitesimal pieces and then actually use those for trade. A Bitcoin can be divided into a hundred million subunits and you can actually use those in trade just as easily as you could use a whole unit. Um, there's no friction at all in the trade of those units. I mean, obviously, the, the limit would be the transaction cost, right? You cannot divide it more than the actual fee for making a transaction from A to B, right? Because if it's smaller, then yes. the value would be basically yes. cobbled up within the transaction process. And the minimum transaction value would be one Satoshi, one hundred millionth of a Bitcoin. But you can actually change that. That's the interesting thing. Um, it would be very difficult 
to get consensus on the Bitcoin network to increase the issuance rate, but you can get consensus to divide it into even smaller units. But there are other problems with, with say, deflationary units such as gold. So, for example, I'm a new Keynesian, or maybe recovering new Keynesian, I should say, and one of the problems that Keynes had with gold, uh, he actually called it, uh, because after World War I, Britain returned to basically the gold standard. Mm -hmm. And that was a terrible disaster. Mm -hmm. What happened basically was, and Keynes called it the golden prison cage, which basically choked the economy. The reason being that everything went back to gold. The goods and services produced within Britain went to very high prices, which basically destroyed, annihilated any demand for them and basically bankrupted all those industries mm -hmm. and annihilated local the local production and local economy. So then his claim was at that time, we need a little bit of inflation in order to sustain growth. We need to be able to sort of float the currency yes. with, with our government and to basically direct a proper economic growth and, and monetary policy. Yes, and this was in an For environment. The of all. And this was in an environment where the currency in circulation uh, could not be subdivided, because if you if you have a penny in your pocket. You can't cut it into a thousand pennies, and you can't cut it into ten thousand pennies and still buy a cup of coffee. So if that becomes too expensive, it creates enormous friction within the economy. Um, this is a completely new paradigm. Many of the old rules do not apply, and they do not apply because um, fundamentally a digital currency that is Div divisible by a hundred million units behaves very differently in the hands of people and is used very differently. And the other important point to realize is that Bitcoin itself is not necessarily a transactional currency. It may end up being a core reserve currency that then backs hundreds of others of digital currencies that act as tra transactional currencies. Like the fallback. It could become the, the gold like reserve currency, not just a fallback currency, but a currency that backs as a store of value the other currencies, essentially the way gold acted mm -hmm. in a gold standard held against reserves. Uh, and you could do fractional reserve against it. Mm -hmm. So th there are all kinds of different models that can emerge from this. The most important point is that these choices are no longer choices that are made exclusively by central bankers mm -hmm. and then imposed in a hostage-like situation on a population, whether it's working or not, which in most of the countries in the world, uh, it's not. I mean, that's the problem. We, we can look at this from the comfort of a world reserve currency in the U.S and say, well, why would we need a different currency? This one's working fine. Go ask an Argentinian and they'll tell you exactly why you need a different currency. And the U.S. has the benefit of pretty much exporting debt across the world. Yes, because, exactly. Yeah. But that's, uh, so the exception is the U.S. Yeah, I agree. And the exception are the top five currencies. There's 193 currencies and most of them suck. Uh, and many of them suck very badly. I grew up in a country where my parents lost almost everything in devaluation twice, uh, and that's a story that's repeated across many places in yes, many places in Latin America, many places in Southeast Asia, many places around the world. Um, the point is that now individuals have choices. And if they choose to use a currency, and that currency puts them in a gilded cage of deflation, and they don't like it, 
they can choose to exit that currency and go to another currency mm -hmm. with a simple transaction um, that can happen seamlessly across borders. So when you have choices, there's no cage, right? Yeah. You know, I was 19 years old, conscripted in the Bulgarian army, and I was actually a sergeant, so I was getting paid more than the regular soldiers. And at the time, we had hyperinflation, and I think I was getting something like 32 cents a month mm -hmm. at the time mm -hmm. for putting my life at, at risk. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I, I know exactly what you mean by hyperinflation and ruining people's lives. Uh, tell me, is there any unique, before we move on, is there any other unique features that are worth mentioning? It's so much. I mean, <laughs> here's the thing. I, I think at a very basic level, thinking of Bitcoin as money for the internet is missing the point. Uh, Bitcoin is fantastic money for the internet. It's fluid, you can do transactions securely across borders, instantaneously, very cheaply. You know, th These are really amazing things. This is really money that can work beautifully mm -hmm. on the internet. But if you look at it as money of the internet, you're missing the big point. Uh, Bitcoin and the technology underneath it create a network, a global network that allows you to transmit value from A to B without any intermediaries. It's a peer-to-peer -peer value network. If you use it to transmit Bitcoin, it enables a currency. You could also transmit stocks, bonds, share certificates, hundreds of other currencies, tokens. You can use it to do allocation of scarce resources. You could use it to buy and sell bandwidth, buy and sell storage, buy and sell ideas, uh, pay for publishing, property. You can use it to do verifiable transactional contracts. You can use it to change commercial um, relationships and contracts. You can use it to do international trade. You can use it to do micropayments. It's one network that goes all the way from nanopayments to gigapayments in a single network. Um, and it enables essentially... At the same price. At the same price. And it enables um, programmable money for the first time. Automation and money. programmable money, smart money. And it does this by creating the internet of money. This is the internet of money. It's not just money for the internet. And once you realize that you can build applications on top of this, and currency, the Bitcoin currency, is just the first application. It's like email on the internet. It's good enough to change the world and have everyone adopt the internet. But it was just the beginning. But you don't even imagine what comes next. The worldwide Twitter, web. Facebook, the World Wide Web. We haven't even built those things yet. Yeah. Some of the people here are building them. Contract systems and platforms based on things like Ethereum. Uh, multiple currencies that can be built on top of Bitcoin. Systems for a decentralized exchange of value where you can transfer from one currency to another. Programmable money is, is really interesting. Let me give you just one example, which I think your, your uh, audience will like very much. And this is the concept of a distributed autonomous corporation. At the moment, every payment system in the world, every currency system in the world, is, requires uh, that the ownership of money is associated with personhood. That means that money can be controlled either by human beings, persons, or the, the constructs built through association, uh, artificial personhood or corporations, 
um, that can manage money on behalf of shareholders or behalf of individuals through institutional controls. Mm -hmm. The one thing you can't do is you can't have autonomous systems manage money. Uh, they have to be attached to a person. Bitcoin doesn't see personhood. It's not designed to go around personhood. It simply doesn't see personhood. It doesn't see people any more than it sees borders. Just like on the internet, you know, the famous saying, in the internet, no one knows you're a dog, <laughs> from the cartoon from the 80s. Um, it essentially removes uh, personhood from the equation. Now, what that means is you can have autonomous systems that can control and manage money. One of the concepts that comes out of that is the concept of the distributed autonomous corporation, which is um, a construct, an autonomous system, that owns resources, money, on the internet, uh, through Bitcoin or some related technology and then acts in the interests of shareholders, who may be other autonomous systems or people, doesn't matter, and then can make decisions, spend money and allocate resources in a completely autonomous manner. Let me give you a post-singularity example. It almost sounds like money for artificial intelligences. Imagine a, a weak AI system whose goal is to optimize publishing of content. And it can use a Bitcoin bank account to pay for hosting on, say, Amazon Elastic Cloud, uh, which is one of the cloud computing services. It can now buy a month of hosting. During that month, it can then establish a number of blogs and publish news by harvesting it off the web. Then it collects micropayments from the readers of those blogs. And if one of the new sites it builds is popular and successful, it collects more micropayments. If one of these sites becomes more successful than the others, it can spin off a copy of itself, a subsidiary that divests, that then goes out and launches more news based on that code pattern. And then it can buy more hosting capability to pay for the next month of its hosting and bandwidth. If it gets really successful, it can increase the amount of bandwidth it's paying. Mm -hmm. It could also, presumably, um, improve its own code, simply by posting ads on forums to hire developers to write better code for itself. And then it can do A-B testing. Take two versions of the code written by two developers, put them out there, and whichever one succeeds in delivering the product or service it's delivering, collects more payments from its users and thrives, and the ones that don't essentially lose the ability to pay for their own hosting and they die. If you do that on a large enough scale, you now have an evolutionary environment for artificial intelligence which can manage its own resources. This is evolution in action. You could literally have a self-evolving autonomous system that can expand when it's successful and contract when it's failing and spawn new generations of itself that are self-improving. The question then is what would that make us? Dinosaurs? No. Obsolete? Are we going to be able to compete with them? Or how many of us are knowledgeable enough and capable enough to compete with an entity that doesn't sleep, doesn't require much more than being hosted somewhere, and that can spin out copies of itself infinitely 24-7? Well, um, what we have is creativity uh, and innovation For and now. intuition. And so what this enables is 
uh, for the um, aggregation and distribution of content. Very simple functions. You could do similar things, for example, for a decentralized Dropbox function, or for a function that creates and shares Wi-Fi hotspots to establish bandwidth in various locations. And what it allows you to do is take functions that today are managed by institutions and make them self-managing. Mm -hmm. Make them managed according to a set of predictable rules, deterministic rules. Uh, systems that cannot be corrupted, systems that cannot be co-opted, and systems that cannot be subverted to serve the interests of those in charge, because there is no one in charge. They operate by mathematical algorithm. Aha. Uh -huh. Let me see if I can come back on topic here with asking that question. Is there no one in charge? Because so let's let's talk about mining. How you can mine bitcoins and see what that says about if there is somebody in charge. So tell us how mining works. So the core concept behind the Bitcoin decentralized trust model is that instead of a central authority deciding what gets added to the ledger of transactions. There's a distributed database which has a list of all of the transactions that happen on the Bitcoin network. And in order to create new transactions, you have to have it added to that ledger so that everyone can recognize that a transaction happens. And instead of a central authority saying, this transaction is good, we'll add it to the ledger, the role of that control over the ledger is passed around. And it's passed around in such a way that there is essentially a global competition that occurs every 10 minutes. And that competition is to solve a specific mathematical problem. And in order to solve it, you have to do a lot of computational work. Mm -hmm. um, depending on how many people are trying to solve it, it gets harder. <laughs> and as a result, no one is in control because everyone has to put in the work and only one person or one um, uh, system is winning this competition every 10 minutes and has the right to introduce transactions. But they only introduce transactions if everybody else accepts those transactions. And because they have to do a lot of work to write these transactions, it's in their best interest to play by the rules and not cheat. Because otherwise they do all the work and then if they try to cheat, everybody notices and their transactions are rejected. And if their transactions are rejected, they don't get the reward. So it's essentially a system of incentives and competition yeah. that work to, to completely decentralize the control among many participants in the network. But, but does it really work like that? And my point to, to this is, is, is the following. It takes computational power to conduct that work. Yes. Now imagine Google tomorrow embraces Bitcoin. Yes. Just like I have embraced it for the past three months. And we both decide to mine. Yes. Right. Now, who do you think is going to mine more coins? Me or Google? You. How come? You're going to be working with a pool of distributed miners all across the world in these associations, just like lottery pools or... Like a mining union. A mining union, exactly. Okay. Uh, there is no single centralized institution. So this is the amazing things that happened with Bitcoin. Because we know Google has tons of computing power. Yes, they don't have enough. Does that blow your mind? Totally. They do not have enough. In five years, because of this set of incentive structures, the computational network that supports the security of Bitcoin is now the largest computational network in the history of mankind. 
It is larger than the top 600 supercomputers in the world. It is larger than any nation-state can put together. It is larger than any corporation can put together. It has more. It's very specific. It's very um, purpose-specific computation. And because it's very purpose-specific, you have to do an investment specifically to do Bitcoin mining. Mm -hmm. And because it's being done for five years in a very competitive environment, there is no single entity that alone can bring a majority of computation against Bitcoin anymore. No single entity on the planet. Now, someone could attempt to do this. They would have to actually go out and build chips in fabrication units, specialized chips. Apple, sitting on $150 billion worth of cash, yes. decides to put $150 billion in mining uh, chips. processors, yeah, yes. chips. First of all, they'd have to do it without anyone noticing. But and even if you notice, what can you do? You change the algorithm. How does that change the game? Well, the, the point is that if a central party tried to do this, they'd achieve two things. First of all, they would violate the trust of the network by doing this, because it would concentrate power in the hands of one group. And so therefore, they would destroy the value of that network. Right? Um, so it's not in their interest to do it, because they wouldn't actually get the reward of mining, which is the tokens on the network, because the tokens lose value if they're too centralized. Uh, if one group had control, essentially they're building Apple Coin, and then you know, if you want Apple Coin, then you could use Apple Coin. But most people who are in Bitcoin wouldn't want that, mm -hmm. so they'd go elsewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, essentially, they'd switch their mining power to to mine a different chain. Mm -hmm. um, the incentives are such that people want to keep it decentralized. If they see concentration of power in one unit, and this is this has happened a few times, we've seen power begin to concentrate in one unit, and then it starts dispersing because people want to decentralize it again. Mm -hmm. The incentives are such that it spreads and decentralizes more than the powers to centralize. Mm -hmm. The worst case scenario, if someone tried to do this covertly, is they'd get excluded from the network, because it would be in the best interest of everybody else to keep them off the network. Um, and essentially to isolate them, creating a small island of computation, which is Apple coin, that you know, if somebody wanted to use, they could use. This goes back to the fundamental thing I said earlier, which is when you plant the seed of a decentralized system, there will be attempts to create copies of it that are centralized. CompuServe, AOL, yes. um, telecommunication providers saying, our voice and video conferencing is better than internet voice and video conferencing. It has better quality, uh, it's more reliable. And guess what? The internet wins every single time. The decentralized system wins because it's more open, it allows for more rapid innovation, mm -hmm. uh, because it lowers costs more effectively, because it delivers more value to all of the participants. Mm -hmm. This is especially true in the case of currency because of the network effect. So. While that kind of takeover, hostile takeover attempt of mining is possible when a currency is in its very early stages, um, once it reaches maturity, and Bitcoin already in five years have reached, has reached a level of computation that backs it, um, that makes it almost impossible to do this. Mm -hmm. And if it is done, all of the incentives are against it. So there are many reasons why this is not a practical attack 
on Bitcoin, mm-hmm. uh, and in fact, it wouldn't be effective. If anything, it would actually lead to a lot more publicity and strengthening of this algorithm. Keep in mind, through consensus, Bitcoin can change. The blockchain technology can be updated as long as all of the participants in the network agree. And like the internet, it becomes more resilient over time as it evolves to uh, address different threats. Uh, Nicholas Nassim Taleb has written about this and called it anti-fragile. The idea that a system that is decentralized, a system that is responsive dynamically to change and that is able to adapt to external stimuli, over time when it's attacked, it strengthens. That's the same as the human immune system. Your exposure to infections makes your body more able to resist those infections in the future. We've seen this in practice on the Bitcoin network and other digital currencies, whereby attacks against the network uh, force the network to adapt, which then makes it resilient to those attacks. We've seen this on the internet. So every time a mount goes goes down, the network is stronger? Uh, in the specific case of uh, Mount Gox, we saw a failure of a centralized institution that had control of your money. Mm-hmm. No different than the 1,000 banks that fail every year all around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it really wasn't about Bitcoin. This was about people taking their individual control of their money and handing it over to a third party without any uh, base of trust. It was a classic institutional failure. In fact, it was a, a failure of a centralized institution. There's often, especially now in the early days of this decentralized trust model, when people identify problems in the decentralized trust model, their natural instinct is to go for the most obvious, simplest solution to that, which is a centralized solution. And there's one thing I can tell you about that obvious and simple solution. And it's familiar and comfortable. It's wrong. Always. <laughs> <laughs> the obvious, simple, centralized solution to the problem is always wrong. And the reason it's wrong is because it introduces single points of failure, just like empty gox. Mm-hmm. It's a lot harder to create decentralized solutions to these problems. Uh, whether it's creating a decentralized exchange for converting fiat into cryptocurrencies, uh, whether it's creating decentralized markets that can resist single points of failure. But once you create those decentralized solutions, they then become self-sustaining, dynamic and resilient, and they get stronger and stronger and stronger over time, instead of becoming weaker and weaker like centralized systems do. Some people have asked me, why can't a government shut down Bitcoin? Why can't a government um, attack it, or a bank, or um, a dictator, or whatever? The easiest way to answer that is that if you look at the early days of the internet, you saw well, a lot of hacks. can't the government shut down the internet? Yes. They can, we, we saw, for example, denial of service attacks, which at first were taking down big sites. Yahoo, Microsoft, yeah. Google went down with denial of service attacks. How often have you seen Google go down in the last five years? Never. Never, right? Because what happened is over time, those systems became more decentralized and more resilient to attack. Built-in redundancy and overlap. And... Right. And so what we see now is that while people can shut down localized access to specific internet technologies on a temporary basis until people find workarounds. Like Egypt or Syria or... Or very hilariously recently when Turkey shut down Twitter because they happened to broadcast the fact that, um, you know, they were trying to do a false flag attack 
in, in Syria to, to promote nationalism or whether corruption scandals, and they didn't want the truth to come out. They tried to shut down Twitter. And the very next day, the trending hashtag on Twitter was Turkey shuts down Twitter. People were complaining about the shutdown of Twitter on Twitter. So clearly they hadn't really shut and it down. Actually, one of my old professors <laughs> here at the University of Toronto uh, has a special lab that they organize uh, things like this to defeat, for example, the Chinese Great Firewall yeah, and for Turkey. Right. And they create solutions almost instantly for people to utilize in situations like that. Right. So, so you can do localized damage, you can do localized exclusion, but what you can't do is you cannot shut down the whole thing. So today, I think most people in society understand something that if you explained a decade ago, it would be very difficult to grasp, which was you cannot shut down the internet. It is not possible to do on a global basis anymore. Yeah. You, you'd have to shut down all of the electricity the and shut down civilization. Yeah. You cannot stop the internet anymore. If you take that concept and understand that concept, we're getting to the point where you can't shut down Bitcoin. And it's already there with Bitcoin, but also you're seeing these other currencies begin to become large and resilient. And the reason is that effectively they're the same type of technology. Mm -hmm. Now, time is advancing, but I, I want to cover a few other issues here. So let's see if we're capable to do that. Um, talk, talk to us a little bit about how secure and how anonymous. We, I think we covered 90% of the security issue with the computational issue. But perhaps you could maybe just speak a little bit more about the security and especially about how anonymous is yeah. Bitcoin. Is it really anonymous? No, it's, it's not. Uh, I would characterize Bitcoin as loosely pseudonymous, meaning that every transaction you do is associated to a specific Bitcoin address. Now, if nobody knows who owns that address, in some sense it's anonymous. For the average person looking at it, it's anonymous. If you have, um, you know, a few dozen supercomputers and a few dozen mega data centers, and you can do massive analytics on the entire set of Bitcoin transactions, you can very quickly see relationships between addresses. And then if you're able to identify one address as belonging to a specific person, which is not that difficult to do. It's like a social network of money you're building. It's a social network of money. For example, I receive tip and donation addresses to a public address, which I have on my website. Like me, yeah. From that, you can know that that address belongs to me. Mm -hmm. um, you could scour the internet looking for Bitcoin addresses and associate them with specific human identities. And then anything that that address touches, you can then say, you can evaluate, well, is that a merchant where this person bought something, or is it one of the other dresses they own? Yeah. And you can gradually build a network. So from that perspective, it's loosely pseudonymous. However, um, there are a number of technologies, just like on the internet, you can identify the ownership of an IP address and build a relationship network. But at the same time, individuals can use privacy protection mechanisms, mm -hmm. like Tor, the onion router, or proxies, or things like that. So there's a range of anonymity. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is that on Bitcoin, it's easier to do radical transparency than it is to do radical anonymity. And this will have a very interesting implication. It will push social institutions that require public accountability to use the features of radical transparency. Mm -hmm. What do I mean by that? If you run a charity, 
and your charity is supposed to, by law, provide public auditing of its finances, and you use Bitcoin, then there will be pressure by all of your donors to publish your Bitcoin addresses. And by publishing those Bitcoin addresses, you can run an algorithm. anyone can audit everything yeah. you do, which yeah. provides for radical transparency, radical accountability. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is that this flips the traditional model where governments have become more and more secret and individuals have been losing their privacy, which is a perverted model of human rights and democracy because it gives power to governments without accountability and it strips individual rights of privacy. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin actually inverts that equation. It creates an environment where large powerful institutions that are forced to be uncountable by their constituents, their their voters, their people, their donors, their shareholders, will be forced to provide more accountability. Whereas individuals can use localized privacy tools to protect their privacy more effectively. And that's the way it should be. Mm -hmm. Now, if, for example, you have a bad actor who's acting in a way that's inappropriate and you want to deal with that in a societal way, uh, it's not that difficult to do because most of the things that we worry about involve conspiracies of people. And you can use old-fashioned law enforcement techniques. You find one of the co-conspirators, you get them to flip on all of the others, they provide you with one of the addresses, and once you have one of the addresses, now you have the entire network, network. and you can unravel it very easily. Uh, so in fact, I think it's a more balanced approach to, to, to financial privacy for individuals, and to financial transparency for organizations that should be accountable for social responsibility. Mm -hmm. In terms of security, we've got a bit of a conundrum here. Here's the thing that is really not immediately obvious. Security is not new. Security is not a new technology. Physical security uh, actually goes back millions of years. Uh, so I like to say... Dig a hole in the ground and put the pot of gold and cover it with a stone. Yeah, I would say, you know, we have four and a half million years of experience in physical security from the time the first, uh, you know, homo sapiens put yeah. uh, a squirrel under a rock so that the other caveman wouldn't eat it. Uh, and that's physical security. And guess where the uh, caveman learned it? He learned it from the squirrel that's burying nuts. <laughs> so it probably goes even further back. So we have that experience, and it has become embedded in human culture. The concept of secure containers, hiding, locks, keys, etc. is so old that you can see um, three-year-olds begin to understand the concepts of secrecy and security and protection uh, at a very early age, because the entire culture reflects those concepts back to them. And then we have about 50 years of doing information security, and we suck at it at every level. We have leaky, weak operating systems full of vulnerabilities and bugs, uh, operating systems that are designed for general purpose computing and that are open to a worldwide network of communications. I consider my laptop compromised at all times. I consider my phone compromised at all times. As soon as that device has touched the internet, it is compromised. That's the working assumption I must have in order to maintain security. I could go through a laborious three-week forensic analysis of my laptop, at which point I could probably prove to a level of certainty that my laptop is secure. 
And then the moment I connected to the internet is now compromised again. Yeah. <laughs> and so you cannot maintain security on these general purpose operating systems. So what is the issue with Bitcoin? In Bitcoin, the user has ultimate control over the security of their keys. You don't own coins. What you own is the keys that unlock coins that are on the public ledger. Everyone knows the coins are associated with certain keys, and you can produce the keys or the signatures made with those keys to say, I want to give these coins to someone else. It's like signing a check. Everyone knows what your signature will look like. Um, and then the money can be transferred in a public way on the public ledger. If you lose your keys, you lose your money. Simple as that. And protecting digital keys on digital general purpose operating systems is not easy. And we've seen this happen again and again. Now, the good news is that decentralized security is better than centralized security. The one thing you can't easily do is steal everybody's Bitcoin. That's almost impossible to do. Mm -hmm. because you would have to compromise all the keys and you don't even know what all the keys are right you would have to compromise the core protocol that's very very difficult to do you can compromise individual keys however so i can have my money stolen but we can't all have our money stolen the answer to that that we found is to either remove the keys from general purpose operating system and put them on specialized devices in 2014, we're seeing a number of companies that are building hardware wallets. These are essentially specialized devices that just do Bitcoin wallets. They have keys on them, they generate keys, they can sign transactions. They don't do anything else. They don't talk to the network, uh, they don't have general purpose operating systems. They're designed to do one thing and one thing well. And so you can't actually extract the keys from these devices, so they're very difficult to hack. The other thing we can do with, with Bitcoin security is take the Bitcoin keys and convert them into a physical form. Uh, one of those is called a paper wallet, where you basically print your keys out on paper. Then you take that paper and you take your four and a half million years of experience with physical security and you put that paper in a steel box and you lock that box with a physical key. And then you put it in your house or in a safe deposit box in a bank or you put it in a tin and you bury it in the ground. Um, and now you've applied the experience of physical security to this token, and someone has to break the physical security to steal it. So there are ways to get around this. It's still very early days. Um, for the average consumer, this is not easy stuff to do. Uh, you have to be careful with how you use Bitcoin, especially in the beginning, especially if you have a lot of Bitcoin. I'm not particularly worried. Uh, when I was on the internet in 1992, to send an email, I had to do Unix command line skills and it took two days to cross the internet. And I can guarantee you that internet was not the internet that my mom was going to use. But my mom is using an iPad today and she's emailing all over the place mm -hmm. and she's quite comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. We made that transition because for every one of these challenges, you can look at it as a problem in technology. And if you're a smart entrepreneur, you can look at that and say, huh, that's a billion dollar opportunity in business. I can build the next generation of banking right now in Bitcoin. Right now in Bitcoin, the Googles, the Yahoo's, the open source Linux, the infrastructure for the next generation of financial services that are going to radically transform this space are being built right now at conferences like this. 
so it's, it's very exciting time. You can look at these as problems or you can look at these as a completely unmapped greenfield opportunity. Um, Eric Voorhees, one of the people involved in Bitcoin and quite uh, well known in this space, uh, has said, it's like we've discovered a new island and now we have to build the bridges, the roads, the airports, all of the infrastructure on this. It's a new undiscovered world. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's one of the things that excites me about Bitcoin. So let's confront some of the criticisms that are commonly thrown at, at Bitcoin. And so, and, and I mean, they come from very notable individuals. So mm -hmm. I can give you Nobel Prize winning economists such mm -hmm. as Paul Krugman. Mm -hmm. I can give you investment gurus such as Warren Buffett. Um, I can give you some of my favorite uh, science fiction authors such as Charlie Strauss. Mm -hmm. And I actually have a few articles here with me. Charlie Strauss famously wrote an article called Why I Want Bitcoin to Die in a Fire. And he gave a number of reasons why he would like that to happen. We actually covered some of his arguments, such as being deflationary. So a couple of his other notable problems were, for example, the um, Gini Index. Charlie says that the equality distribution uh, of Bitcoin is actually horrendous. It makes a, a sub-Saharan totalitarian regime look like a beautiful democracy. And not only it's so horrible right now, but it's actually getting worse mm -hmm. given the trend. So what, what would you say about that? I would say that what we're seeing is a characteristic of a technology that has rewarded the people who took extraordinary risks in the beginning because they pioneered something that has enormous value for the future of humanity. And I think in some ways these criticisms are valid. However, the distribution of incomes in the real world, which is quite horrendous, uh, is in many cases based on war, on slavery, on occupation, on economic exploitation, and on theft. Yeah, but In this particular that... case, um, Bitcoin's income distribution has been based on innovation, invention, and enormous risk-taking by individuals who are able to see in this particular technology a future that others failed to grasp. Mm -hmm. There's something very different about that, in that individuals who are able to see the future and take big risks should be rewarded. Now, should they be rewarded this disproportionately? I, I think that's a perfectly valid argument and we can discuss it. Um, and, and at this point, Satoshi Nakamoto, if uh, they, he, she still control the keys to most of the Bitcoin that were mined in the, in the first year, um, would become the world's first trillionaire. Now, I would much rather have Satoshi Nakamoto be the world's first trillionaire uh, than some of the existing billionaires who have built their fortune on exploitation, because he actually gave us a gift to humanity that will reverberate through the next century, uh, in my opinion, and will empower billions of people and give them freedom. But we don't know what's going to happen next. I think it's a valid argument and we need to see how it plays out. The point is that Bitcoin pioneered this. 
it may not end up being the transactional currency of the future. These are criticisms of the Bitcoin currency. And to me, the Bitcoin currency is the least interesting aspect of Bitcoin. Okay, fair enough. But but let's say we stick with our focus of criticizing the currency. Sure. Is it getting worse? Because I let's say I accept your argument that the people who created it need to be rewarded. Now we can debate to what degree, but that's like yes. Besides the point. The point is, is it actually getting worse? Because he's saying not only is it bad, but it's actually getting worse in time. In other words, it gets more and more concentrated. I, I don't think it is getting more worse. In fact, what I've seen, at least from the people who made a fortune in Bitcoin early, what most of them have done, um, and this also goes against the hoarding argument, is that they've taken that money and they've reinvested it in these companies. Many of the companies in the Bitcoin space have been funded uh, entirely through Bitcoin angels, through grassroots investments by people who made their money in Bitcoin in the early days. People who turned that fortune around and reinvested it in the Bitcoin ecosystem and are creating this, this tsunami of innovation that is going to benefit uh, everyone who comes after. And at the same time, we're beginning to see that the adoption of Bitcoin is spreading to a mainstream audience and is getting very, very distributed uh, across many, many people. Um, I don't know whether that initial advantage then gets amplified by increasing prices and becomes an entrenched advantage. If it does, I will be the first pioneering a new digital currency to disrupt the inequality of Bitcoin. Because just like Bitcoin is disrupting the inequality built into our existing fiat currencies, maybe in 20 years we will need to disrupt Bitcoin. I have no problem with that because um, you're not libertarian? Well, first of all, I'm not a libertarian, but most importantly, <laughs> I'm a disruptarian. I think every single political Fantastic. ism uh, eventually becomes co-opted, corrupted, and captured by the people who gained the early advantage and needs in itself to be disrupted. Uh, change and disruption are the things that lead to progress and uh, rebalancing uh, societal institutions. Here's the thing. The difference is that in Bitcoin disrupting the entrenched financial systems, it's working against closed, proprietary, massively controlled networks of wealth that have um, millennia-old tentacles embedded into every part of production and society. Disrupting Bitcoin will be a lot easier because you have a fluid transnational currency that can be instantly converted. Bitcoin is a choice. No one forces you to use Bitcoin. If you don't like Bitcoin, you can use another currency. You can create your own currency. We're living in a post-national currency world now, where currencies can be created at will and have no inherent monopoly power. So I would much rather be working to disrupt Bitcoin 20 years from now than the much bigger struggle we have now, which is disrupting the Koch brothers and you know various other in, entrenched interests, um, which have trillions of dollars uh, and control the wealth of the planet, vis-a-vis -vis, you know the other six billion. Uh, who have no access to international markets and international finance that Bitcoin can bring online into a, a global economic society. 
it's very important to focus on the technology behind this and not just the currency. The currency is a token. And if we get it wrong the first time, we can build another one very easily. Because what we've done is we've broken the monopolistic power of currency and made currency a technological tool that can be deployed by anyone, anywhere, at any time. And a choice that anyone can adopt anywhere in the world. And you preempted my following questions, my following question perfectly by saying, I'm not a libertarian, I'm a disruptarian. And I absolutely love that, by the way, because I'm not I'm not a libertarian myself. So, uh, even though in the transhumanist community, probably the vast majority of people are definitely libertarians, uh, and which is of course totally fine, because I'm not here to tell people what they should think or what they should do, uh, and I don't hide my own personal opinion too. So I, I very much respect your frankness, and, and I appreciate it. Which is kind of cool because we are also in an environment right now where it seems the majority of our friends are libertarian. Um, at any rate... <laughs> this is a big tent. I mean, I think it's important to note that... I agree, that's very nice way to put Bitcoin it. Bitcoin technology itself is neutral. It's neutral to politics, it's neutral to religion, it's neutral to geography, it's neutral to everything. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin is a value network that allows value to be transported from address A to address B. It doesn't care who owns address A, who owns address B, what content the transaction, why the transaction was made, what goods or services it was buying, or even how much value is in the transaction. You pay based on the kilobytes of value you're transacting across the network. It is the first neutral financial network that has ever existed. And what neutrality at the core of Bitcoin allows is what the same thing that neutrality at the core of the internet allows. It allows an Egyptian blogger to have the same voice as the New York Times, and sometimes better because Judith Miller lied and the Egyptian blogger didn't. Yeah. It allows the power to innovate at the edge of the network without permission, which has never happened in financial services before. These things are based on the core concept of neutrality because Bitcoin as a transport protocol in a network is completely neutral to politics. It's not libertarian. So um, what's your biggest dream when you speak about Bitcoin in that sense? My biggest dream is very simple. I think Bitcoin has within its power to connect uh, the other six billion, the people who have some access to banking, but no access to international finance, international credit, trade opportunities, um, and to bring them online into a world of economic opportunity where they have equal power, where a smartphone is as powerful as a Bloomberg terminal and a Swift terminal, where a farmer in Kenya can use an SMS messaging system to transact on a global stock market to uh, buy to get loans from a global liquidity pool uh, to send wire transfers across the world. And they're probably not going to do all of those things, but they're at least going to be able to escape from the clutches of predatory banks and predatory governments that in most countries. Uh, use control of a monetary system, use control of a currency and inflation to rob people of their productive value. And you have so much productive capacity out there, so many people who um, are isolated from the ability to transact with the rest of the world and as a result suffer economically. So to me, this is very much about the other six billion. Sometimes people here think that Bitcoin is about shopping 
and making shopping more efficient in the first world. Bitcoin is about everything else, everywhere else. Beautiful. So, is it fair to say that, I mean, I'm a singularity guy. And this to me sounds like the singularity of money. Is that fair to say? Yes, I think, I think that it opens the door to uh, the ability to have a level of automation and programmability and intelligence and smart money uh, that we haven't even begun to uh, explore. And it's the kind of thing that leads to exponential curves in innovation, exponential curves in development and experimentation and protocols and autonomous systems and so many crazy things that could be built on top of this fundamental platform of programmable money. Uh, there have been a couple of historical moments in the history of economics and finance in the world, from the early 1600s and the introduction of corporations and shareholders with the East India Company and the Royal Charters and things like that, which gave birth to the London Stock Exchange and trading and financialization. And you see at that moment in time, economic growth and development going from a flat line to an exponential curve suddenly. We're about to hit that second inflection point where money becomes transnational, global. It is removed from the control of single entities and institutions. It becomes available to everyone on an equal basis. And it becomes a powerful tool for expression and for experimentation and for global trade. And it's programmable. And the opportunities are truly endless. Tell me, for those of our, of our viewers who are interested in finding out more about you and your work, what's the best place? Uh, I do work with a number of different organizations. I do a bi-weekly podcast called letstalkbitcoin.com. Um, that's one of my favorite forums. Uh, I've done a collaboration with uh, our producer, Adam B. Levine and Stephanie Murphy. And we host this program and talk about all things Bitcoin, uh, cultural, social, political, economics, uh, programming, technology, all of it mashed together. And we just explore these topics in a very open way. Um, there are a number of other places people can visit to learn more about Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoins.com, uh, WeUseCoins.com, uh, Bitcoin.org. Uh, those are just some of the places they can visit. And I think the best way to really experience Bitcoin is to get some, uh, even a small amount. Uh, don't be scared by the fact that Bitcoin may cost uh, several hundred dollars. You don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. You could buy a thousandth of a Bitcoin for three dollars. Right now, four dollars, yeah. um, and or a hundredth of a bitcoin for four dollars right now. So you can experiment with this. Um, if you meet someone who owns bitcoin, you know, give them five dollars, get them to give you some bitcoin so you can play around. I donate bitcoin to people I meet. It's the best way to experience. Um, there's one of these uh, little, almost mythological uh, stories that have come out of the bitcoin experience where. Uh, Wences Caceres, who's uh, one of the early Bitcoin pioneers from uh, Latin America, from Argentina, sat down with a bunch of investors and VCs at a golf club and tried to tell them about this thing, Bitcoin. And he got them to install um, Bitcoin on their phone. And he said, let me send you some Bitcoin and we'll just move it around the table and see what happens. 
And so he transmitted Bitcoin to the person sitting next to him, and they look down at their phone, and they've got a quarter of a million dollars that just popped up on their phone, about 7,000 Bitcoin at the time, and their jaw just drops. And they're holding this, and they're terrified, like, what do I do with this? Like, just give it to the person next to you. And in, in a matter of three or four minutes, you have a quarter of a million dollars bounced between ten people around the table for cost of less than a dollar. And these people had never met before, had no prior association, had created no accounts, had provided no identifying information, and they could have been at the four corners of the globe, anywhere on the planet, you know, and done this transaction with the same speed, the same security, the same efficiency. And when you see that and suddenly realize it is not possible to do this with any other kind of system, it is simply impossible. It just hits you and you think, wow, this is really something different. And you can take it from that extreme to the completely opposite extreme, where I put um, a donation address on Twitter, and I have thousands of strangers all around the world send me a five-cent donation over Twitter. They haven't created a bank account, they don't know who I am, and they didn't require permission from anyone, and I didn't need to know them or give them any details other than my address. And they can just send me five cents. And again, that is something that you cannot do with any other payment system in history. Little examples like that give you an insight into just one application, currency, and what it can do. Andreas, I have kidnapped you from the world for double the time that I promised I would keep you for. So unfortunately, I'll have to return you back to the world to do your mission. Uh, but before that, let me ask you, we've talked today for maybe about 75 or 80 minutes. What's the single most important thing, the single most important message that you would like our viewers to take away from our conversation today? Bitcoin is not a currency. Bitcoin is the internet of money. Currency is just the first app. And if you scratch just a millimeter below the surface, you will open this entire world of possibility and realize that this is a trust model, a decentralized trust network that enables so many applications and it changes so many of the centralized institutions that we depend on as a society. And it will have radical implications for decades to come. If you focus just on the price and the money, you're missing the point. That's like looking on the internet and saying, it's a fancy telephone, we already have fancy telephones. It's a better way to do postage. We already have the postal service. Why would we need the internet? And I heard those exact things said about the internet in the early 90s, and they were wrong. And so look beyond the surface and you will realize there's something a lot bigger there. Well, as a contrarian myself, it was an extreme pleasure to meet my first disruptarian or self-aware and self-admitted disruptarian. So, Andreas, thank, thank you. you very much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you.